Let's pray. Father, we pray that you by your spirit will open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your Torah today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we return to the gospel according to Moses. It's the book of Deuteronomy. And I've got to tell you, I've been continually blown away by the truth and the love and the faithfulness of God in this book of the law. Now, you think as a Christian, what in the world is that all about? And by the way, Deuteronomy is the book of the law. Deuteronomy is what the Lord commanded Joshua to meditate on before he led Israel to conquer the land of promise. It was Deuteronomy that Josiah heard read to him when the priests found this book when they were cleansing the temple in Jerusalem. Upon hearing the words of this book, King Josiah tore his clothes and commanded his people to cleanse the land post-haste. Hearing God's warnings about the curses for disobedience in Deuteronomy gave Josiah a lot of incentive to put things in order in the kingdom of Judah. Well, today and next week, we're going to be in chapter 7 of the book of the law. So if you don't have it open yet, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And our passage for today is chapter 7, verses 6 through 16. Now, you might find it strange that we begin this chapter starting in verse 6. Now, if I were sitting in your place, I know I would be thinking that. This is kind of strange that we're starting there instead of verse 1. But given what the Lord commands his people to do at the beginning of this chapter, I thought that we need to look at God's faithful heart of love today to prepare us to talk about something very difficult that the Lord is going to command his people to do in chapter uh, 7, verses 1 to 5, and verses 17 and 26. God is going to command his people to perform genocide. Where Yahweh tells his people to destroy every person in all the nations listed at the beginning of the chapter. And so we first need to remind ourselves of the heart of God before we deal with genocide, lest we get the wrong idea of who God is. Now, it's no secret that many have gotten the wrong idea who God is in our day. Now, there are some so-called leaders in the church of Jesus Christ who have falsely accused God as being an exacting, angry, bloodthirsty deity who continually flies off the handle in rage. It's these same people who maliciously call God, and I'm not making this up. These are their words, not mine. They call God a cosmic child abuser. Because ultimately, it was the Father who orchestrated the crucifixion of His Son, placing all of our sin on Him, dying as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the Father's wrath that's due us. Jesus took the wrath that we deserve. And they call that cosmic child abuse. Now, this is not only a contemporary problem. It was a problem back in the day as well. See, the gods in Moses' day were seen as aloof uncaring, and bloodthirsty as well. You want good crops? Give me your children as a sacrifice, the gods would say. You want forgiveness for your sins? Offer to me the fruit of your body, the firstborn, so that you might be forgiven. That was a meme, by the way, even in the days of the prophet Micah. And he says this in Micah chapter 6, verse 7. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. 
Now, again, that's what the pagans were saying. That's not what God's people were saying. The point is that we desperately need to see, once again, the heart of God. Lest when we tackle the genocide issue, the command that Yahweh gave to his people, we will have gained a deeper understanding of who he really is. See, we do not want to falsely accuse the Lord of being someone that he is not. Would you agree? You know, it's sort of like the story that Jesus told about the master. Remember this? He gave his three servants some talents. He gave one servant five talents. He gave another servant two talents, another servant one talent. Now, what's a talent? It's not like a a special ability. We're talking money here. A talent was like 70 pounds of silver. Now, as we remember, the master told the servants to go and invest and to get a return on those talents. And two of the servants increased their talents, while the one servant with the one talent actually buried that talent. And when it came time for accountability, the master told two of the servants, well done, because they invested and they got a return. But the third servant falsely accused the master. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, etc. But what did the master do to this servant? He cursed him and cast him into outer darkness. See, this wicked servant excused his disobedience to the master by falsely accusing him. And so today, let's talk about the faithful heart of the love of Yahweh before we talk next Lord's Day about the genocidal command that he gave his people. Now, there's a reason why God would actually have his people do such a thing, and we're going to explore that next week. And as I mentioned, our passage for today is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 16. This is a beautiful, fascinating description that the Lord gave of himself to his people through the mouth of his prophet Moses. In these verses, we have three things to talk about. First, we will discover the identity that the Lord gave Israel in verse 6. And what an incredible identity this is. And then in verses 7 through the first part of verse 9, we will see the Lord's character. He will open up his heart again to his people. And what a magnificent heart the Lord has. In the last part of verses 9 through 16, we will see how the Lord relates to his people regarding the covenant that he is making with them. And so again, three things to talk about regarding the Lord's faithful heart of love, Israel's identity, Yahweh's character, and their relationship one to the other regarding the covenant. So let's read about Israel's identity in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It is the Lord who tells his people who they are. They are holy. They are Yahweh's treasured possession. And and would to God that every person would simply accept what he says about them instead of trying to figure out on their own, right? According to their own lived experience or according to their own feelings. You know, if everybody in the culture would just accept what God has to say about them, things would be a lot different, a lot better, don't you think? Israel is the Lord's holy people. That's what God called them. When I was preparing for this, the first thing I did when I looked at that I smiled really big. 
And then I laughed. And a modified voice of Anigo Mantoya came into my head. You use that word, God. I don't think it means what we think it means. Because though the Lord declared them to be holy, they were anything but, as most of us understand the word holy. Remember their history. It was just three days after they crossed the Red Sea. Remember that story? God had wiped out every last Egyptian soldier. But Israel falsely accused Moses and ultimately the Lord that he wanted them to die of thirst. You brought us out here only to kill us with no water. Well, a couple months later, at the foot of Mount Sinai, Israel had a little party. They made a sacrifice to a golden calf. They had a feast. And then they rose up to play. Spiritual adultery and sexual immorality were on steroids in that party. All the while the Lord was meeting with Moses and Moses was meeting with the Lord on Mount Sinai for him to receive the commandments, to tell his people how to live. Let's also not forget the reason why they wandered around in the desert for 40 years instead of enjoying the blessings of going into the land of promise. It was their fear-based disobedience where, again, they falsely accused the Lord that he wanted them dead at the hands of the Amorites and the giants living in the land. These were the very people God said, go wipe out, but they refused to do because they were too afraid. Does this sound anything like holiness to you in the way we understand it? Not to me. It sounds like this word doesn't mean what we think it means. So what does the Lord mean when he says to Israel, you are holy? In a nutshell, the Lord called Israel holy because he set them apart from all the nations around them. And in essence, he told them, you are mine. I am yours. We are in an exclusive relationship. You alone are my treasured possession. That's what that means. You know, it's kind of like marriage, especially the wedding day. Now, we're all familiar with this. See, on the wedding day, the bride and the groom, they proclaim their vows. They both make lifelong promises to each other. And the bride says to her groom in that promise, In saying yes to you, I'm saying no to every other man on the planet. And likewise, the groom says the same thing to his bride. And they both declare to each other, we will keep only unto one another as long as we both shall live in exclusive relationship. That's a holy covenant. And that is bedrock. That is what holy means here. Now, obviously, there is a moral purity aspect concerning their relationship. Because God expects his people to reflect his holy ways. But regarding Israel's identity, it has everything to do with Yahweh setting the nation apart for him alone to be his exclusive, treasured, and cherished possession. God says this about his people. And as good as that is, though, We need to move on and we need to discover God's revelation of his magnificent character in verses 7 through the first part of verse 9. Now, of course, we know that that verse divisions are not inspired because I'm going to I'm going to cut that statement in in verse 9 and half. There's a reason for that. And he says it was not because you were more in number than any other people 
that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is Now we notice here that God, by his sheer grace and his mercy with Israel, deals with them in a negative way and also in a positive way. First, a negative. Israel's small numbers as numbers per se mean nothing to him. And I'm so glad about that, right? We think about Grace United. There's not a whole lot of people. I mean, we don't have thousands and thousands of people come here. But God is still with us, is he not? Indeed, the Lord simply highlights here that there is nothing that he finds inherently attractive in Israel. But now notice the positive. The Lord set his love on you. And it literally reads this way in the original. The Lord strongly longs for you. Think about that for a second. The Lord strongly longs for you, like a lover, so to speak. Yahweh's affections are warmed at the thought of his relationship with his people. And naturally, when the only all-powerful being in the universe desires someone, well, guess what he's going to do? He's going to have that person. In other words, Yahweh likes his people. In spite of their sin, he desires to be around them. They don't have to overcome their reluctance in order for him to be with them. Think Jesus, Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus wanted to be with his people, even though the people didn't necessarily want to be with him. Not only does God desire his people, he also loves them, meaning that he meets their needs. And we're going to see in a moment just how extravagant our God is in doing this. Now, God likes and loves his people. Amazing grace and mercy, isn't it? Not only that, but the Lord declares himself to be faithful to his promise that he made all the way back to Abraham. He told Abraham that his descendants were going to be enslaved for 400 years, and then he would take them out of there and bring them into the land he promised to give them. And that's exactly what he did. He delivered his people from the king of Egypt. He declared his undying loyalty to them, for he is Yahweh, their God. He is faithful. Can't you hear God say this to Israel? You are my precious ones. I've chosen you. I'm faithful to not only you, but your ancestors as well. All the way back. I am faithful to keep my promises. You can rely on me. It's this unchanging Lord of creation. And how blessed is anyone who lives in his favor. This is the character of Yahweh. Hallelujah. You know, what is amazing to me, though, is how the Lord, the ultimate person in the universe, desires to have a grace and mercy laden relationship with fallen, sinful humans. But notice I said relationship. As with any relationship between persons, there is always a dynamic. And what a dynamic between Yahweh and Israel. Let's take a look at verses 9 to 16. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him 
and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Some might think, look at that and say, well, that's not a whole lot of grace. That's not a whole lot of mercy. But there's something very powerful here. Notice I said again, relationship. So let me continue. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples, literally in the midst of all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt which you knew will he inflict on you, but he will lay them on all those who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples that the Lord your God shall give over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. So much to see here. Again, Moses reminds his people that there is a living dynamic between them and Yahweh. He will loyally keep his covenant with those who love him and keep his commandments. He will also repay and ultimately destroy those who do not love him, as in those who stubbornly refuse to love him by not keeping his commandments. Moses says basically this, make sure that your lifestyle speaks loud and clear. I love the Lord, and I show it by obedience to his ways. Again, I keep emphasizing this, but I can't emphasize it enough. Not perfectly, but loyally. What's the trajectory of a person's life? If it's toward living the ways of the Lord, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about God zapping somebody for every little thing that they do wrong. But what is this? Except that the Lord treats his people with the utmost of dignity and respect. He tells him, in essence, I'm not going to force you to love me. But if you do want to show me that you love me, then you will keep my ways. That's what he's saying here. Now, talk about love and keeping my commandments. Where have you heard that before? A couple places. Deuteronomy 5.10, for example, when Moses gives him the second word of the Ten Commandments, you shall not bow down to them or serve them as in other gods. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who what? Love me and keep my commandments. In other words, Moses tells his people something like this. You are free agents. God will give you the choice as to whether you will keep his ways or not. But the negative part is you can't choose the consequences if you don't obey, if you stubbornly live in disobedience. And let's not forget the words of the Lord Jesus when he told his disciples practically the same thing. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's the same thing. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. Because we have to remember something. Who is it that Israel is dealing with? 
the only all-powerful, all-knowing king of the universe. That's who they're dealing with here in a relationship. Now, amazingly, God does not force his will on people. He doesn't force his people to obey him. They must choose. And this is the epitome of dignity between persons. Is that not right? The Lord will let the people die in their sin if they so choose to. But on the other hand, the Lord will bless those who get with his program. We saw in verses 12 to 15 how Moses tells his people how generous Yahweh is with his blessings. He will give them an overabundance of blessings in their fields and their flocks. No miscarriages among their animals and far more importantly, among their people, among the women. As we saw in verse 14, let me read it again. There shall not be male or female barren among you. Now, why is that significant? He put that there for a reason. Simply put, the culture of belief was that any woman who could not bear children was cursed of the Lord. So Moses is basically saying here, daughters of Israel, the Lord will remove from you the curse of barrenness as you faithfully keep his ways. And speaking of removing things, the Lord through Moses told Israel, you remember the evil diseases and all those things that were placed on you when you were in Egypt? As you are careful to walk my ways, these very diseases that you experienced will not be put upon you, but they will be put upon those who hate you. And then in verse 16, Moses reminds the people of yet one more of Yahweh's character qualities. You shall consume, literally eat up like cake, all the peoples that the Lord your God will give over to you. Did you notice the character quality here? God will give Israel's enemies into Israel's hands. Military victory is assured. In a part measure, God will give Israel the victory because of his desire to have an exclusive relationship with them. And therefore, all the rivals must be gotten rid of in the land. In another word, genocide. Israel was to show no pity to the enemies because the nations of the land of promise that they were going to go into, those nations wholeheartedly committed themselves to their gods. And the Lord knew that the rival gods, the rival religions, would distract and even entice Israel to go after them, and spiritual adultery would result. And God says, spiritual adultery is something my people will not do. And so to close out the message today, let's review Yahweh's beautiful, fascinating character qualities he inspired Moses to tell his people. I came up with six qualities. Maybe you can come up with more. Number one, God is the almighty deliverer. The very reason why multiplied hundreds of thousands of the sons and daughters of Israel were standing on the east side of the Jordan River listening to Moses was because Yahweh saved them. He delivered them from Egypt. God is the savior of his people. Number two, God is the faithful promise maker and promise keeper. He will not fail to keep his promises. Not one word which has come out of his mouth has fallen down to the ground. He says what he means, and he means what he says forever. Do you believe that? Another challenging question. 
Do you live as though you believe that? Number three, God has warm affections for his people then and now. He not only loves us, he likes us. He enjoys the company of his people. We don't have to overcome his reluctance for him to meet with us. Further, God tells us that his people are his treasured possession. Remember last week, if you were here, the prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians. Ephesians 1.18, in his prayer, we talked about this last week. And, and he says, having our eyes enlightened, he's talking to the church now, that we would know among other amazing things, what are the riches of the Lord's glorious inheritance in his holy ones? Who's in, who is the Lord's inheritance? It's us. It's amazing. And as good as that is, God also declares his people as holy. We are holy. Get that? Now, what does holy mean, as we said before? It doesn't mean moral perfection. It means he set us apart for himself. We are living in an exclusive relationship with him. Again, not a perfect one, but one that's separated unto him and to him alone. Faithful to the Lord alone in the spiritual marriage between him and us. Do you have any spiritual lovers in your life? Hope not, other than the Lord. Number four, God is extreme in his generosity. What he gives, it's abundant blessings. And he also takes away things as well. Like he says, the evil diseases that they experienced in Egypt. Now, of course, diseases affect everybody. And we're painfully aware of that, aren't we? Now, we live in a fallen world, but we have the assurance that the Lord wastes nothing in our lives in the here and now. And we will experience no death, no diseases, no suffering, no pain when we're on the other side. Hallelujah. Number five, God treats his people with the utmost of dignity and respect. He will bless us as we love him and keep his commandments. He will fully repay those who hate him, meaning that those who stubbornly are disloyal to him, he's going to deal with them. The bottom line is that he gives his people his commands and he basically says this, choose who you will serve. When we serve him, he rewards us. When we disobey, he disciplines us. Anybody ever been disciplined by the Lord? But when one lives in active, ongoing rebellion, even while claiming to be part of the kingdom, he destroys. It's tough stuff, but that's what he says. And number six, God prepares his people for victory in the battle, then and now. For Israel, Moses prepared the people for physical warfare, doing battle in the strength of the Lord. And spiritually speaking, it's the same way with us. Remember what Paul told us in Ephesians 6.12. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so when it comes to spiritual warfare, we offer no quarter with sin. Ever play with sin? Ever toy with it? Kind of pull it out, play with it for a while, then kind of put it back. But as Christ warriors, 
through the Holy Spirit who lives within us, we have the power to put down every temptation that comes against us. Do you believe that? I see head nods. But do you believe it? Really? We're going to go into more detail about this next week as we deal with Yahweh's genocidal command in the rest of chapter 7. Yahweh in all of his glory has a faithful heart of love. He likes and he loves his people. And truly the Lord teaches us the way of life, the very best way to live. May the Lord bring back to our remembrance, not only today, but not just next week, but all the rest of our days, as to how he is our deliverer. As to how faithful he is to us. How he delights in us as his people. He is extreme in his generosity toward us. He treats us with the utmost of dignity and respect. And he prepares us for spiritual battle that we might live in consistent victory. And my question for all of us is simply this. Why would anyone refuse to love Yahweh? As great as he is and after all he's done for us, the least we can do is to pledge allegiance to him and to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. My brothers and sisters in Christ, you desire to abide in him. Do you want to know how to abide in Christ? Remember what the Lord Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. If you love me, he says, you will keep my commandments. So let's cling to and enjoy our God, the ever faithful one who has an amazing, holy heart of love toward his people. Now, believe it or not, we have a couple of minutes for Q&A. And uh, we haven't done this for a while. In fact, I don't think we've done this in our whole series of, of Deuteronomy. So if you have a question about what we've talked about today, or if you have a question about what we talked about all the first six chapters, you'll have at it. Maybe you can stump the pastor today. I don't know. But uh, does anybody have any comments or any questions about today or even about the whole series so far? Um, verse 14, where it says, there shall not be male or female barren, because pretty much throughout most of Scripture, those who were barren were women. Yes. So I find it really interesting that he specifically says male or female in that Scripture passage. That is a very good question. <laughs> Now, um, as I was going through, I, I thought the very same thing. I didn't take the time to, to do an in-depth study on that. But my thought is, because so often when God says something, especially the Old Testament, there's a lot of blanket statements. And so when he says male or female, my initial thought is that there is going to be no barrenness, period. And again, next week we're going to talk about these seven nations. There may be more than seven nations, but when he says seven nations, he's talking about complete annihilation of all the nations. So I think that's kind of what he's talking about there. So it says, your eyes shall not pity them, neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Yes. Does that mean we don't have to pity those who don't love the Lord? We are going to talk about this extensively next week. 
But the, but the point is, and I just, I just kind of give a little sneak peek here. There is one thing that God cannot stand with his people. And that's spiritual adultery, to be spiritually cheated on. Those of us who are married or who have been married or even liable to become married, we know that a marriage relationship is the most sacred, most intimate thing, most exclusive thing there is, right? God oftentimes refers to his relationship with his people as a married relationship. And so when when there are rivals in the relationship, God says, "Uh uh-uh. And what he's doing here when he's talking about this, don't pity those who are your enemies. Again, he was saying to the people that he says, annihilate, get them out of there because they are committed to their gods and they will want to take you, my people, away from me. And that's what he's primarily saying. So, so again, we're going to talk about that next week, very extensively, yes. Because again, genocide is, is our topic next week. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your heart of love. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you treat your people far better than we could ever deserve. Thank you for grace and mercy and kindness and compassion and your deliverance of us, Lord. Lord, we're not in the Old Testament days. We're in New Testament days. We're on the other side of the cross. The Lord, you dealt with your people in grace and mercy in the Old Testament days, just like you deal with your people in grace and mercy in the New Testament days as well. We entrust ourselves to you. And Lord, why would we want to go away? Why would we want to commit spiritual adultery? Why would we want to not be faithful to you? So Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word, which is forever settled in heaven. I thank you for the Torah the teaching of your ways. Lord Jesus, you told us how to abide in you, and that is to keep your commandments. You told us that if we want to love you, we are to keep your commandments. So now, Father, I thank you so much. I thank you that you are consistent with your people. We don't have to figure it out. We don't have to try to to figure it out. That, Lord, you are always consistent, and your love is always constant to us. So, Lord, I pray now that as we turn our attention to get another couple of acts of worship, our giving and singing. I pray that you would help us to do these things as unto you, because Lord, you alone are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name.